Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 is where we begin. And the word of the Lord reads this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the 18th century um, preacher in England, once said, I think it well to turn a little to one side that I may ask my reader to observe adorningly the fountainhead of our salvation, which is the grace of God. By grace you were saved. Because God is gracious, therefore sinful men are forgiven, converted, purified, and saved. It is not because of anything in them or that ever can be in them that they are saved, but because of the boundless love, goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, and grace of God. Tarry a moment, then, at the wellhead. Behold the pure river of water of life as it proceeds out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. What an abyss is the grace of God. Who can measure its breadth? Who can fathom its depth? Like all of the rest of his divine attributes, it is infinite. I want to welcome you back this morning to a series that we have titled uh, Sola, which is subtitled The Heart of the Reformation. And uh, we kicked this series off last week. And as we talked about, October is a month where we're celebrating an event that happened 500 years ago on October 31st. You see, October 31st, Uh, 500 years ago, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, um, had some very deep theological concerns about what he saw in the scriptures related to salvation versus to what the church at the time was teaching about salvation. And because of that, he wanted to start a conversation and have a conversation with others about what he saw. And so what he did was he wrote his concerns down. And he titled them the 95 Theses, and he nailed them to the church door at the University of Wittenberg, where he was a professor of theology in the hopes of starting a debate. And as we talked about, he nailed the document to the door, not trying to be rebellious, and he wasn't certainly trying to start a reformation. All he was doing was trying to engage in a debate, um, So, it, re- relating to the inconsistencies that he saw between the Word of God and the church's stance on justification. And... He was, he was doing that because he really wanted either to be corrected or to correct the church's teaching. All he was doing was trying to start a dialogue. 
But little did he know that nailing that 95 thesis to the the door, that he would cause the the Catholic Church to not only pronounce him to be a heretic, but he actually created a monumental movement that changed the entire world. It changed the entire course of all of human history. In fact, of the 2.2 billion people who profess to be Christians today, the vast majority of them are either Catholic or Protestant. And what I mean by Protestant, I mean Christians with a historical and, and a theological connection that goes all the way back to this event that happened 500 years ago um, and to the, to the Protestant Re- Reformation. I mean, an event that was inadvertently started by Martin Luther nailing that document to the door. It was an event that changed the world. In fact, we are here right now in this building because of what happened on October 31st, 1517. I'm standing before you this morning preaching the word of God to you in English as a consequence of Martin Luther's actions 500 years ago. And last week we, we talked a lot about that in the first message of this series. And we really we spent a, a great deal of time laying the, the groundwork and, uh, and, and, and talking about the, the background of this historical event. And, and, if, and if you weren't here, you, you really missed a lot of the foundational uh, conversation, the, the historical information about this series. Um, but the good news is um, you can either uh, listen to this message online uh, at our church website or our SoundCloud page, and, uh, and you can listen and get all caught up and really have a better handle on the things that we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. Um, but with that last week, we talked about the fact that in, on this event on October 31st, it led to what is known as the Protestant Reformation or a time period between the 16th and 17th centuries where people stood up against church tradition in order that they could reclaim the gospel and bring to light the true gospel of Jesus Christ, which Martin Luther believed was clearly expressed In the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says this. He says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew uh, and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, over a period of about a thousand years, salvation became not simply about faith, but instead was about about the church and the church traditions and the church rules and the leadership of the church at the time called the magisterium and the papacy. Right? It was about what they had to say. But Martin Luther read the scriptures, right, which which said righteousness, the righteous shall live by faith. But the, the Catholic Church at the time said that righteous, the righteous people will live by faith and confession and penance and communion and buying indulgences and paying for relic, paying to go see relics and all other sorts of rites and rituals. Martin Luther saw this conflict between the Bible and what it says and what the Catholic Church says. And out of this conflict for him came the all important question who is right who is the ultimate authority is it the pope is it the magisterium is it is it the church traditions or is it the bible the word of god who has the final say about doctrine who has the final say about faith who has the final say about what it means to be saved And Martin Luther along with other reformers at the time came to all the same understanding and their understanding was the scriptures 
The Bible is the sole final authority on all matters of faith and all matters of practice. Sola Scriptura was the Latin phrase that became the slogan of the Reformation that clearly points to the idea that all that we need to know about God and all that we need to know about salvation is found in the Bible, the very Word of God, or Theonustos, which is the very breath of God. It was the Bible, not tradition, Not the opinions of men, not the will of councils. It was the Bible that was reclaimed as the sole source of accurate, infallible, inerrant truth. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. And out of this understanding uh, from the Bible came four other slogans or four other sola statements about salvation. And it goes like this. We are saved by sola gratia or grace alone. Through sola fide, faith alone. In solus Christus, or Christ alone. And it's all for soli de gloria, or the glory of God alone. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. You see, the Reformation was all about a return to the foundational heart of the gospel. We appeal to scripture alone. For the final authority about that truth. And that scripture tells us we're not saved by what we do. We are saved not by our own merit. We are saved by grace alone. Through faith alone. In Christ alone. And that's it. Out of the Reformation came these life-changing and world-altering slogans. Sola Scriptura. Sola Gratia. Sola Fide. Solus Christus. And Sola de Gloria. Ideas that that captured the heart of the gospel and changed the entire world in the process. And last week we spent some time and we unpacked the idea of sola scriptura. And we talked about how important it was 500 years ago. And we talked about how it's still important today because there are still people in our culture and even in the church who are trying to appeal to other things like emotions and philosophy to be our final arbiter of truth Sola Scriptura is as important today for us in the church as it ever has been. Now this week, we turn to sola gratia, or grace alone. Now this Reformation idea of, of, of sola gratia, or being saved by grace alone, is probably of all of them the easiest to explain, and probably the easiest to understand that we are saved by the grace of God. I mean, I think we all have a handle on it. I think we kind of understand that, that God gives us grace and we're saved. It's really easy to explain and it's easy to understand. But let me just tell you, this is the idea, the idea of being saved by grace alone. This is an idea for so many people. It's the hardest of the ideas to accept. It's the hardest of, of, of all the sola ideas to be, to be reconciled for many people. Because for some reason, there's something inside of just about everyone that says there has to be more to it than this. There's something in us that says there must be more to me being saved than than God saving me by his grace. I mean, I need to do something, right? I need to do some good works. I need to go to church. I need to do penance. I need to keep some rules. I need to go up on a mountaintop somewhere and look for God, right? I need to exercise my own freedom of choice. I need to do something. I need to participate in my salvation on some level somewhere. That's why the church for for nearly a thousand years slowly began to little by little add traditions and rites, right? You're saved by grace, they said. And then you're saved by your baptism and your participation in mass, 
right? And, and thanksgiving and, and taking the Eucharist and, and communion. And then it became about confession because you can't be saved if you have unconfessed sins in your life. And then it was about pilgrimages and fasting and indulgences to pay for sins that weren't paid for by the cross. And then it went on and on and on and on. Salvation by grace alone is easy to understand, but it's hard for some reason for people to accept. That's why there's so many groups trying to make something else out of it. Like a church that's the, the, the church that says that you're saved by grace alone and your baptism. Right? There's, there, there's, there's, there, there's a denomination that preaches that. You're not saved unless you are baptized. According to them, you're not saved until you get baptized. Right? Because somewhere in their hearts, you have to participate on your salvation on some level. You have to do something to, to be saved. Right? And then we have our friends in another um, faith tradition. Right? And, and they say almost the same kinds of things. They say things, well, you're saved by grace. But then they add the phrase, after all that you can do. See, for them, it's, it's, it's you're saved by grace after all that you can do. As if you need to do everything in your power to be saved. And then God sprinkles a little bit of grace in there to fill in the gaps. Right? Or other traditions that, that, that say you have to, that you have to you know, manifest certain gifts. Or other traditions that say that you have to be baptized in, in a certain particular name instead of being saved by grace. But understand... It's not just religious groups that struggle with this. It's normal Christians too. I think all of us kind of had this experience. We receive the good news of, of the grace of God. And we give our lives to Christ. And we begin to live this brand new joy. And we're in love with Jesus. And we begin to go to church. And we, we pray. And we start, we start reading the Bible. And we go to Facebook. And we like all these different Christian posts. You know, let people know how much we love Jesus. Right, and we start changing. Our lives begin to, to to change, right? And we start giving up things like cussing, mostly, right? Right? We start giving up things like gossiping, most of the time, right? And then we 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 try to get rid of the secular music and and, and the, the 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 ugly movies and pornography, and and we even try to stop, you know, giving people that that salute when we drive down the freeway when they when they cut us off. Right, that we, we begin to change. Our lives begin to visibly manifest change. Right, and we live this brand new life for Christ, and we're excited, and everything is good, and we feel that joy. And and then we fall down. We sin, and we sin in a very bad way. Right, we fall face down in the dirt. We bump our head on the ground. I mean, we we mess it up really in an ugly way. I mean, it's not even a question for us. We don't even like doubt. It was what we did a sin. We know it was a sin. And suddenly then, we're like, oh no, I've sinned. God is going to reject me. God is going to turn away from me. He doesn't love me anymore. And we think, I just, I need to get right with God. I, I, need, to get, I need to fix this. I need to do some stuff. I need to do some good things so God will accept me again. And I think we've all at least thought that at least once. But wait a minute. God didn't save you because you did something to make him accept you. God saved you by his grace, not because of something you did. Understand that God saved you not because of what you did. He saved you in spite of what you did. God saved you by his grace. Now, now please don't misunderstand me. All right, I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel deep remorse for your sin because you should. 
I'm not saying that you shouldn't be upset when you fall down in sin because you should be upset. You should mourn for sin. You should feel that sorrow. That sorrow should lead you to repentance where you turn away from your sin and you turn back to God. But you don't repent to make God accept you. You repent because God already accepted you. Because you're not saved by what you do. You're saved by grace. Sola gratia. In fact, let's look at the text again. Ephesians chapter 2. Because I think in this text, Paul really unpacks this entire idea. And when you see it, you wonder how, how church tradition could, could alter this. But Paul opens up and he begins. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. And in this opening line, there is a part in here that many people will struggle with. Because there's something in what Paul says here, for some reason, we want to skip over or we want to overlook. Okay, let me read this again for you. He says right here, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked. You see, not only were you walking and living in your sin and your trespasses, not only were you living a life on earth of willful sin and disobedience to God, you were dead. Dead. Okay. In case you missed that, you were dead. You have to understand this. This is an important foundational truth that you have to come to terms with. Otherwise, the gospel will absolutely make no sense to you. You have to understand that you were dead in your sins. Not alive, but dead. Now, obviously, Paul's not talking about being physically dead here. He's not talking about physical life and death. Because... Paul is talking about spiritual life and death. Because the truth is, physically, dead people can't sin or walk in sin, right? Because they can't walk at all. Why? Because they're physically dead. So obviously, Paul's talking about spiritual death here. right? He says they were spiritually dead. So obviously, Paul's talking about the spirit here. Now, the word that Paul uses in the Greek here is pronounced nekros. Nekros. And it's an adjective that's derived not from, it's an adjective that's derived from the word nekis, which literally means corpse or a dead body. Okay? Nekras literally means what lacks life. It means it's something that's dead. Figuratively, it means not able to respond to an impulse or perform a function. It's unable to do anything. It's ineffective, dead, powerless, unresponsive to the life-giving influences um, of God inoperable to the things of God. And so, so being spiritually dead means that you're not receptive at all to things that are spiritual. You are not able at all to hear the voice of God. You are unresponsible, I mean, un, un, unresponsive to his life-giving influences. Why? Because you're dead. Dead people can't be motivated. Dead people aren't responsive to stimuli. Dead people don't hear voices. Dead people don't grab a hold of a life preserver that's thrown to them. As the definition says here, that they're unable to respond to impulses or perform functions. Why? Because they're dead. Lifeless. Inanimate. Inanimate. People say that's, that's, that was our spiritual condition. That's what Paul says. It's our spiritual condition. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were spiritually dead, 
How can you save yourself spiritually? If you're spiritually dead, if you're spiritually unresponsive to the life-giving influences of God, how can you save yourself? And the answer is simply, you can't. Because you're dead. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. Well, then how can you be saved at all if you're spiritually dead? I mean, because death is a pretty permanent condition, right? Well, it would take a miracle, right? Well, that's exactly what happens. It requires a supernatural act of God. It requires a miracle. That requ- it requires that God do something for you that you cannot do for yourself. It requires that God do something for you in spite of your inability to do something. So you must be saved by something altogether outside of you. Because you're dead. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself here. Actually, I want to follow where Paul continues to go here. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Paul makes it clear that being spiritually dead towards God and his life-giving presence, right, that this, spirit, this spiritual reality actually manifests itself in how we live in the physical world, right? He says that, that, that we are spiritually dead as we walk, right? We participate in trespasses and we sin. We are sinners, broken sinners, right? That's the consequences of our spiritual death, following the course and the direction of this world, which, which is following the prince and the power of the air. And he guesses on who that might be. It's Satan. Is there any question in your mind that the world is following the influence of Satan? 189 people were killed last night by a car bomb in Somalia. 60 people were killed in Las Vegas just a couple weeks ago by a crazed gunman. Right? That's just not even the tip of the iceberg. How about the 60 million children who have been sacrificed to the God of choice through abortion in the United States since 1972? In my lifetime, 60 million children. All in the name of women's rights. All in the name of women's health care. 60 million children. 60 million babies. And today's abortion advocates, they don't even argue anymore about the fact that they're children. They used to say, well, it's just tissue. But they don't even argue about that anymore because they know scientifically it doesn't even make sense. They just say that, that these children don't have the right to live if their moms say that they don't have the right to live. 60 million children. You know how many kids that is? That's twice the population of Texas. It's almost twice the population of Canada. If you want to know what 60 million people look like, you take the entire population of California and Texas and wipe them all out. And then you will have some idea of the genocide that's happening and the Holocaust that's happening in our country in this lifetime. 728,000 children have been killed this year Alone to date. And yet abortion is defended and even celebrated. Right? In the cult, by the cultural elite. By Hollywood. In fact, there was one Hollywood actress that said that she would actually. Would give a wonderful review and a rating of her abortion hospital for her first abortion. Right? 
It's supported by major corporations, even non-profit organizations. Since 1980, since 1980, over 1.4 billion abortions have taken place in the world. 1.4 billion. If you want to know what that is, that's 20% of the world's population as it is right now. Tell me the world isn't following Satan. Never mind the flood of pornography that we live in. Never mind the sheer ugliness and the bitterness that surrounds us. Never mind the, the, the sexual predators that are being finally exposed at the highest levels of our culture where women and children have been exploited for decades. Never mind all the teachers that we read about. It seems like every single week a new story of teachers having illicit relationships with their students. Never mind the fact that there are more people in slavery today than there ever has been in a point in any human history. Never mind the fact that faith in God is attacked at every single level and in every part of culture. This world is following Satan, whether it knows it or not. Maybe it's unwittingly, but it follows him. Why? Because the vast majority of the world is spiritually dead. And Paul says, we were just like him. We were just like them. We were dead, and as a result of that, we walked in our sins and we followed right along with the rest of the world. Being spiritually dead has physical consequences. It, mass, it, 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 it manifests itself in the material world around us. That's why we see what we see. That's why there's so much pain and destruction. The vast majority of the world is spiritually dead, and we were just like them. But how do we get that way? How did it happen? Well, Paul tells us, he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Right here, Paul tells us the truth. Right? And this is a truth that so many people want to push back on. This is a truth that so many people don't want to accept. He says that we were by nature children of wrath. It's our nature. It's natural to us. It's our nature to be spiritually dead like the rest of the world. We by nature are God's objects of wrath. We are by nature have the wrath of God that rests upon us. What does that mean? It means being children of wrath is an intrinsic part of who we were before Christ. It literally means we were born that way. We're born sinners. We were born spiritually dead. In fact, King David tells us in Psalm 95, I mean, Psalm 51 for verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, or I was born in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born sinners. We're born spiritually dead. We were born spiritually stillborn as we opened our eyes and took our first breath physically. There's nothing in us spiritually responsive to God. There's nothing in us that could respond to God's life-giving influence. Right? We were inoperative, as it says, to the, to the things of God. And Paul says... But that was our nature. We were born that way. And you know what the funny thing is? There's a lot of people that outside, that live outside the church that recognize that. Right? 
They recognize that we were born that way. In fact, that's, that's usually the excuse that many people have for, to justify their lifestyle and their actions. They say, I'm born this way. Right? You can't judge me. I'm born this way. That's what they say. And I'm going to say, yeah, you were born that way. Because we're all born sinners. Every one of us. No one had to teach you how to be selfish. You figured that one out all by yourself. Right? No one had to teach you how to be jealous. <laughs> Watch the little kid have somebody take his toy. No one had to teach you to be violent. Right? We, had that, we had that in us from the earliest of ages. No one had to teach you how to be sneaky or to lie. Right? The fact is, We were all that way from the very beginning. We were all born that way. Which leads to the fact that we all must come to terms with. And the fact that we need to come to terms with strips away all of our self-righteousness. It removes every bit of whatever self-righteousness we might think we have. It removes all of our boasting. It destroys all of the traditions that say you can save yourself if you will just do something. And the fact is this, being spiritually dead and being born that way means there's absolutely nothing you can do to change it. There's absolutely nothing you can do to fix it. You can't follow enough rules. You can't be nice enough. You can't sacrifice enough. You can't be compassionate enough. You can't deny yourself enough. You cannot feed enough people. You can't rescue enough kittens. You cannot sponsor enough underprivileged children. You can't give enough money to charity. You can't beg enough. You can't cry enough. You can't mourn enough. There's nothing you can do to fix your spiritual condition. You were spiritually dead. You were born that way. And there's nothing that you can do on your own to change it. In fact, the prophet Isaiah poetically puts it this way. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous deeds, our very best efforts, everything that we could do good... Are like polluted, looks like a polluted garment, filthy rags, trash before God. We all like a leaf, we all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. We were dead, dead in our trespasses and sin, and we were born that way. And that is what it means. And what that means to us is that we are completely and utterly hopeless. We are by definition helpless. Okay? It's like a newborn infant trying to climb up on this building here to put a new roof on in half an hour by himself. Okay? That's more likely to happen than you to save yourself. We were by very, our very nature, the very definition of helpless, our hope of escape... By doing something on our own is completely and totally impossible. There's not even a probability for it. And this right here is an important truth that we have to understand. We have to, we have to embrace this. We have to, under, we have to embrace our helplessness here. Because if we don't come to terms with this and understand this, what Paul is going to say next is not going to make sense to us. If you're going to understand what Paul is driving at, you have to own this. You have to foundationally recognize your helplessness in order to make sense of Paul's words. And so so Paul makes it clear that we are spiritually dead. We live a life of sin following the world which follows Satan. And we're born that way, helpless to change. And then he says, 
in verse 4, but God. And I don't want to belabor this point, but I want you to know this. He says, but God here. Okay. Because the solution to the greatest problem you're ever going to have, your complete lack of spiritual life, the solution to that problem begins not with you, not with mankind, not with, not with church tradition. It begins with God. Paul says we have a problem, we are helpless, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The entire foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ rests in this one verse. I want you to notice all the action verbs that take place here. And I want you to notice who the person is the one that's doing all the action. Paul says, but God being rich in mercy, God by his very nature is rich and abounding and overflowing in mercy. And mercy, what it means is to not give someone the punishment or the penalty that they deserve. And he's overflowing with that attributes. We know what we deserve. We deserve hell. But God being rich right, in mercy doesn't give it to us. Why? Because of the great Love, the overwhelming love, the unimaginable love with which he loved us. God's rich in mercy and he loved us. And understand, we didn't love him. We weren't looking for him. We weren't wanting him. He loved us. Now, did we do anything to make God love us? No, nothing at all. Because, because he loved us, even, it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were born children of wrath, even when we walked in sin in our trespasses, even when we followed the world who is sold out for Satan, God loved us and made us alive together with Christ. We were not alive, but God, because of his mercy and his love for us, made us alive. He performed a miracle. Do you understand the importance of that? A miracle that he performed wasn't something we could do ourselves. We were dead, unable to do anything. And then God, God made us alive. Understand, it's all God. Salvation is all God. He's the one who has mercy. He's the one who loves us even when we're unlovable and dead. He's the one that makes us alive. He didn't make us alive because we went to church. He didn't make us alive because we followed some rules. He didn't make us alive because we prayed some prayer. He made us alive because he decided to make us alive by his grace. And Paul, in fact, Paul says in the very next phrase, by grace, you have been saved, right? You're saved by the grace of God. And, and this is a little phrase that Paul inserts here as a parenthesis because he didn't want anybody to miss it, Right? Because Paul is saying, he says, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then he says, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that we not only have been made spiritually alive, but we have received eternal life and have a place in heaven. So that, he says, in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That when Christ returns, the fullness of God's love and riches of his grace will be on full display for the world to see. 
God makes us alive in Christ and gives us eternal life so that the glorious generosity of God can be fully displayed when Jesus comes back and makes all things right. And in the middle of that phrase, Paul wanted to make sure, just in case you were going to miss the point, he says, by grace you have been saved. And again, this is an important point to him because he emphasizes it again just a few verses later. In verse 8 he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Twice. In just a few verses, Paul says that you are saved not by your own merit, not by recognizing that there is a God and that you need him, not by keeping a set of rules, not by your compassion towards other people. You are saved by grace, by his overwhelming, abundant, undeserved grace. Because that, by the way, is what grace is. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. You see, mercy is the opposite. Mercy is not getting the bad that you deserve, but grace is getting the good things that you, that you don't deserve. And Paul says, you're saved not because you deserve it. You're saved in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it. And if that wasn't clear enough, if that was not plain enough, Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And just in case you didn't know, it's not your doing. Just in case you missed that point, it's not your own doing. All right? You didn't do it. It's a gift from God, not the result of your works. Again, you didn't do it, right? so that no one may boast. For by grace you've been saved. It's not your own doing. You didn't do anything at all to get it because it's a gift, a free gift. A gift that he gives in spite of the fact that you don't deserve it. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us the wages of sin, what we earn, what we rightly deserve because of our sin is death. We are spiritually born dead and we deserve to stay spiritually dead. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God, the undeserved grace of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For by grace... You've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Not the result of works. Not the result of what you can do. Not the result of you looking for God. Not the result of your attempts to be good. Or anything else that you can imagine. Or anything else that you think that you possibly could imagine to do. And the reason why it's that way is that no one may boast. So anyone could say that it had anything to do with it. So that no one could say that I had anything at all to do with their own salvation. I know, I know for me, I know for me, I've personally thought of the idea of being saved in God's grace. It's kind of like me in a vast, dark ocean. And I'm out there by myself. And I'm treading water and I've been treading water for a long time. And I'm doing everything I can to keep my head above water. And I'm struggling and I'm fighting. And I'm, I'm really rest, you know, you know, wrestling with this. And I'm gasping for air. And I'm growing more and more and more weary. Right? And I keep going underwater and I keep coming back up. And I'm choking and spitting. And I'm struggling. And it seems like it's never, ever going to end. And just as I go under one last time... God throws out a rope with a life preserver on it and I grab a hold of it and he hauls me in the boat. And that's my understanding. That was been my understanding for grace or the image in my mind for many, many years. But it's not accurate. It's not really how it is. You see, what's more accurate is the fact that you're already dead in the ocean. You're already dead, 
right? And you've long since stopped actually floating in the water. You have sank to the very bottom of the vast abyss and your corpse has fully decomposed all the way down to your skeletal remains as you lie there motionless, helpless in the vast, deep darkness. You're completely devoid of any hope of grabbing onto anything that might save you because there's nothing in you that can do that. There's nothing you could do. And it's in that condition that God dove into the water as Christ dove into this dark world. And he swam to the bottom of the abyss and he lovingly collects your remains and he brings them to the surface and supernaturally creates something new out of the old as he puts together again your new life as he breathes new life into you, this eternal life. What did you do to deserve it? Nothing. All you did was lay there at the bottom of the abyss, motionless, helpless, dead. That's the picture of being saved. That's the picture of what grace really is. In fact, Jesus, while he was on earth, performed a physical miracle that really beautifully illustrates his spiritual reality. In fact, turn with me to John chapter 11, just really quick. Um, in In verse 1, it says... Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who was anointed, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And the sisters went to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So this is the point in the the story of Jesus in his narrative in his history, that Jesus' ministry is actually getting close to the end. Right? In fact, very soon after this particular event, he will be arrested and crucified. But, he, but at this time, he gets word that his friend, Lazarus, is sick and it's bad. And, and so Lazarus' sisters, they send word to Jesus for two reasons. Number one, they know that Jesus can fix it. Number two, they know that if Jesus doesn't help, that, that Lazarus will probably die because it's, it's bad. And so they send word. But Jesus does something really, really strange when he finds out. He doesn't leave immediately and go to his friend and help him and heal him. Instead, he decides to wait. He waits for a few days before he leaves. And in the process of this waiting, Lazarus dies. And if you've never read the story, you might be really confounded at that point. And Jesus knew that he would die, which is even more strange. And then Jesus said that this is for the glory of God. And so the son might be glorified through it. Jesus waited and Lazarus died. That really would, again, seem out of place. Now, the rest of the story that we read, we're going to see a compassionate Jesus Christ as he weeps for his friends. One of the greatest verses is the shortest one in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Right? And we're going to see the beauty of God's power. And we're going to read the promise that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But in this story, we see a physical illustration of a physical, I mean, a spiritual reality of the dead, be given, dead being given new life. You see, when, when Jesus got there, Lazarus had been dead for four days. Beginning in verse 38, it says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he's been dead four 
days. Right? Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because this is the reason why Jesus waited to come to Lazarus. Jesus knew that, if, that, that he would die and he waited so that death, the death of Lazarus was a verifiable, established fact. Because if Jesus would have come really soon and arrived just as Lazarus died and he raised him, the people would say, well, he just revived him. He just, he just healed him. Right? But by being dead... By having his body processed and prepared for burial and then being laid in the grave and being in there for four days, it was very clear to the world around that Lazarus was not coming back, that he was completely dead. In fact, that was, the, that was his sister's um, objection is that by this time he's going to stink because he's been dead so long. He was completely inanimate. He was completely helpless like we were in our spiritual state. He was totally void of any ability to be responsive to anything around him. He was verifiably dead. Because what happened next was a miracle that completely and totally was dependent upon God. This was a miracle that didn't depend upon Lazarus' cooperation in the matter. Right? It was totally dependent upon God. In fact, in verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you would see the glory of God? So take away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, and his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now some will say, see, Jesus called Lazarus, and he came out of the tomb. Jesus called Lazarus, and Lazarus responded, and that's true. Jesus did call Lazarus. Lazarus did respond. But how did Lazarus respond? Was it the dead Lazarus that responded? Or was it the Lazarus that was made alive that responded? You see, when it comes down to salvation, when it comes to being saved by grace, when it comes to being given life from the dead, we are unable to respond. We were unable to receive God. We were unable to hear His voice until He, by His grace, gives us the life and the ability in order that we may respond. It is God that initiates life. It is God that initiates the relationship. It is God that initiates salvation. It is not us. Salvation is completely 100% the work of God. And we have nothing to do with it on our own. Otherwise, it wouldn't be grace. It wouldn't be a gift. It wouldn't be deserved. It would be something that we earned. It would be something that we worked for. It would be something we could boast about. But Paul tells us as clear as day, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. We were spiritually dead 
in our sins. Like Lazarus was physically dead in that tomb. You were unable to respond to God, but God, for whatever reason, God, by his grace, decided to breathe new life into you so that you could respond and follow him. Now, I think probably the most common objection to this teaching is, wait a minute, I have free will. So I choose God. I chose to follow him. God didn't make me. I chose to follow him. Well, I understand that, but you could not have chosen to follow God if God hadn't first chosen you. You It's just as simple as that. Because if God didn't choose you, you wouldn't have the ability to choose him. Because you're spiritually dead. Right? But God chose you and made you alive. And because of that, you were alive and you were able to hear and respond to his call. And those who hear God's call respond to his call. As Paul says in Romans, one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Bible. And we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified or saved. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now with that, you know, man will ask, well, how does my free will work if God is sovereign and he's the one that does all the choosing? Because the Bible does tell me that I must choose this day who I'm going to follow, right? The Bible does make that clear that, that, that I must follow him. I must obey him, right? So how does that work? How do I have a choice if God is completely in control? Well, well John Lennox is a, a Christian apologist. He's also a theologian and a mathematician at Oxford University, which means this guy's like crazy smart. And, uh, and somebody asked him that same question. In fact, the guy that asked him was a physicist. He said, John, how, how do you reconcile that? You want to tell me that God is sovereign, right? You're saved by grace, but yet you want to tell me you have free will. How does that work? How does that fit? And John says, I'll answer your question if you'll answer mine. And John says, uh, you're a physicist, right? He said, yeah, I'm a physicist. He says, so let me ask you a question. Do you believe in energy? And he's like, well, of course I do. I'm a physicist. It's all about energy, right? And John Lennox goes, well, then can you explain to me what energy is? And so the man begins to explain to him how to measure energy and what energy does and how energy works. But John's like, wait, wait a minute. You're giving me all the details about energy, but you're not telling me what it is. So what is it? And, and the physicist had to admit, he goes, I, I don't know. He said, nobody knows. We can't, we don't really know that at all. And John's like, well, you believe in consciousness, right? Well, yeah, I believe in consciousness. I'm conscious right now. Well, what is consciousness? Well, I, 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 don't, I don't know. And John Lennox says, it's really strange to me that you as a physicist don't know what energy is and you can't explain that, which should be really easy to explain compared to the, the infinite God, right? And then you want me to explain how God works. He says, just as the way that you as a physicist, you believe in energy because you understand the world by what you see through it. I, as a Christian, 
believe the word of God because of its explanatory power of how things work. Because I can't reconcile and figure out how God does everything that he does. Doesn't mean I don't have a reason not to believe the same way you don't have a reason not to believe in energy because you can't explain it. And so when people push back against this idea you're saved by grace, the question you have to ask yourself is who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust your own emotions and your own intuitions and trust your own ability as a philosopher to reconcile this? Or will you trust the word of God that clearly says, as Paul tells us, you are saved by grace. You're saved by grace alone. Sola gratia. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you, Lord, for, for this truth. I thank you, Lord, that, that I am saved by grace. Because I know if there is even like the slightest bit of wiggle room for me to have anything to do with my salvation, I'm going to mess it up. I just know myself well enough to know that. that I know that there's nothing in me that, that can sustain the energy that it takes to be perfect. And I just, I, I, don't, I don't have it. I don't have it in me at all. But I'm grateful, Lord God, it's not even about that. You saved me by grace. For some reason, you, you, you picked me. I, I, I don't know. And I, I, I don't know how, even exactly how it works. I just know and trust you that it's by your grace. And Father, I just thank you for that. And I thank you that for all those who have responded to your gracious gift. And I pray that all of us would, would walk in the glory of that. That we don't have to worry about you casting us aside because of some fickle reason, because I'm, because I'm stupid or I'm a jerk. Your grace is sufficient, as you said to Paul. Your grace is overwhelming. Your grace is limitless. And I just walk in that today, glorifying you in that. And Lord, that grace makes me want to be more obedient. Not because I want to be, be saved because of my actions. I just want you to be glorified. I just want people to see how beautiful you are and how magnificent you are and how glorious you are that you would save a wretch like me. I pray, Father, that all of us would walk in that today. That we would walk in this tradition that was handed down 500 years ago that helps us to see the truth of the gospel, that your word of God, that your word of Lord is our, our beacon of truth. And in that we find that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it is for your glory alone. Be glorified in what we do today. Be glorified in how we live. Raise up a people in this church who are hungry for you and that would go out into the world and share the hope of Jesus Christ. We love you, we praise you. It is in Christ's name we pray, amen. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.